Chris Spann is an associate dean in the College of Education and also a professor in the College of Education at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Professor Spann also serves as the university's faculty athletics representative to the Big Ten Conference and also to the NCAA. It's in these spaces that I have gotten to know Chris over recent years and to respect him deeply and to enjoy his company and to learn from him. I'm so excited that he joined us on the Sport and the Growing Good podcast and had to have the chance to learn from him and to hear about his his perspective, not only as a researcher, but also on his experiences growing up and his experiences making his way through college and also his experiences serving as a mentor. Professor Spann has written extensively on the history of education. He's one of the leading scholars nationally on the history of education. He's got an extensive list of things he's written. You can look up and it's a really impressive list. He's a tremendous scholar. He has great perspective to share with coaches on a, on a few things. One is on when we come into new places as coaches, when we come up, get a new job or move to a new town and we start again in a new place, he has a really rich perspective as a historian on how do we learn about the place and that where we're starting and why should we learn about our context where we are. Much of his own story, as he tells, as he tells it in this discussion, it has been affected by mentors in his life and people who have helped him at different key stages of his life growing up and even as a as a professional during his adult years and so i asked him also to share his perspectives on on these mentors and then also to share perspective on how he mentors others this has been another really common theme um, that coaches have shared with me over recent months is the importance of mentors how do we know who can be a good mentor for us how do we learn from mentors and on the other side, how can we be great mentors to, to young coaches and to young leaders? Professor Spann has really wonderful insights on these things. So it's always a pleasure to learn from Professor Spann, to learn from Chris. And I'm, again, just so grateful that he joined us. And I think um, we all can learn a lot from, from Chris Spann. accidentally a professor. I think that's the easiest way to describe it. It wasn't my first choice. I actually wanted to be a high school history teacher. And um, when I was in high school, I had these two high school history teachers that were phenomenal. And I wanted to do that. But my dad always wanted me to be an engineer. And he passed away um, right before uh, my senior year of college. And so when I was applying to college, um, I had applied to the University of Michigan. I applied to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Iowa State. Um, and it was some small school in Kansas. I don't remember it. And I really wanted to go to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign because I saw the 1989 Flynn basketball team. And was like, I got to go see this basketball team in person. I didn't understand it. By the time I get to college, they wouldn't even be there, right? But when I was looking at the schools, and it's funny because Michigan won the NCAA championship that year. They had Glenn Rice and Ramil Robinson. Uh, I never even considered Michigan as an option because my dad wanted me to be an engineer. So when I applied to college at Illinois, I applied for nuclear engineering and I was admitted. And I took the... Uh, very first class I took in college was calculus. I think it was math 120. And I knew within 15 minutes, I wasn't going to be an engineer. <laughs> I, they were speaking a language I didn't understand. And so I went to the professor after he read the syllabus, very first class. You know, what we do as professors, we don't do much the first day of class. We just go over to 
our, our contract, our syllabi. And I said, how many more courses I got to take like this? He asked me my major. I told him nuclear engineering. He's all oh, this the rest of your life. <laughs> the rest of my life. I said, yeah. I said, oh, I said, I, I, I said, I appreciate that. So I immediately walked out of there, went to find my uh, counselor, academic advisor. So I don't want to be an engineering anymore. They said, well, you can go in this thing called general curriculum. And I said, well, I'm going to general curriculum. And it was at that point that I had said, well, engineering is not going to work out. Maybe I'll be this high school history teacher, but I never did it. I stayed in general curriculum for about two years, didn't decide to switch to psychology because I had a bunch of friends in psychology. And it was only after um, I had decided that I was going to go ahead and pull the trigger and try to be a high school history teacher that I went to talk to someone and they said, oh, if you hadn't started your freshman year, you'll probably have to stay in college a little bit longer because of all these courses you have to take that's required by the state. It really depressed me. So I actually withdrew from the university and I had decided I would just find a job. It was toward the end of the semester anyway. This is 1992. I started college in 1990. I decided I would find a job uh, somewhere in the city of Chicago and then I would tell my mom that I got this job that is so good that I'm not going to go back to school. So I didn't tell her I withdrew from the university. She picked me up like there was no, nothing went wrong because I essentially decided that this was the last week I'm going to withdraw and she'll pick me up and everything's fine. The only job I could find was pumping gas at a full service gas station for $3 and 85 cents an hour. <laughs> I like, I can't tell my mom I dropped out of college for this. So I went back to U of I around the 4th of July, Champaign, Illinois, begged the person who counseled me out of the university to find a way to counsel me back in. And I don't know what she did. Her name was Joanne Hodges. Uh, to this day, I still shovel her driveway. She's in town here. She's retired. <laughs> I owe her everything. I, every time it snows, I go by her house, I shovel her driveway. Um, I don't know what she did, but I was right back in the school, but I lost that semester. The very first course I took was this class called the Foundations of American Education. And it was a historian of education who had talked about 400 years of this thing we call school. And I knew then, I said, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. I don't want to be a high school history teacher anymore. I want to be a university professor. And so I started doing everything I could to be around this professor. His name's Paul Violas. Learned from him, took all his classes. He taught courses on European education and antiquity. And even though I'm a, uh, a trained expert on the African-American educational experience, my first training in graduate school for my master's degree was European educational history. And because I wanted Paul Violas to be my advisor. So I accidentally stumbled into this profession we call a college professor. And I remember when he asked me if I ever thought about graduate school. And I didn't know what it was. I was first generation college student. I didn't, uh, you know, I, I was first in my family to go to college. I never even thought about graduate school. And I said, well, what is graduate school? And he explained to me, well, if you want to be a professor, like you keep saying now, you have to go to graduate school and earn his PhD. And uh, I think you'd be very good at it. So maybe I can write you a letter of recommendation to go to graduate school here. And that was literally him writing a letter of recommendation, but I didn't want him to know I withdrew from the university. So I wouldn't submit the application. <laughs> I figured once he found out I withdrew from the university, I'm not graduate school material, you know? And he didn't understand my hesitation. So he knew I would not make a homework assignment. I wouldn't miss a homework assignment in his class. So instead of doing the required homework assignment for that week, he's changed it specifically for me to fill out my application to graduate school. And I had to sit in his office, fill out the application, and submit it on the spot. I told him I didn't have my checkbook. So he actually wrote the check for me to apply to graduate wow. school, the application fee. Um, and he says, you're going to apply. You got my letter. Go find two more letters. He says, if you don't do it on your own, these will be your next two homework assignments. And I literally went and found two letter recommendations because I didn't want those to be my homework assignments. I was already embarrassed enough. And I figured now the game's going to be up because he's going to find out that I withdrew from the university. It's anything but the case. He was like, look, we still think you're great graduate school material. You've done nothing but Excel since you've withdrawn and we're good to go. And 
that was kind of like when the light bulb went off for me, like, you know, you might be able to actually do this thing. And maybe you should try to have a little bit more confidence in yourself because there's seems to be people who have a lot of confidence in you. And so it took me two and a half years to do my master's degree. I didn't struggle with it. I just couldn't quite figure out what I want to write of my master thesis. I thought I did, and I had to change it. And, you know, it took a while to make that adjustment. But it only took me two and a half years to complete my doctorate. Um, and so I did it in less than three years. Although I forgot to deposit my dissertation, so it looks like it took me a little longer. <laughs> so, so, but that was the accidental path to becoming a college professor, and I really haven't looked back since then. I'm curious about that advisor who who he had that meeting with in the summer. What happened in that that conversation? Do you remember that when you went back? Oh yeah, uh, her name is Joanne Hodges, and uh, she was an advisor in LAS. And she was one of the handful of African-American administrators that were uh, on campus. And I remember very vividly two things. One, she spoke to me like we were a family, okay? And two, she had all these turtles in her office, you know? I mean, just all these little decorative little knickknacks. And I had never really met anybody in college that spoke to me like I was a family member. You know, everyone spoke to you in a very professional and courteous way, but not kind of like she had deep concern that I was withdrawing from the university. Mm -hmm. And her frustration was there aren't many African-American males, particularly you know, grew up in Gary, Indiana. Um, even though I went to high school in Illinois, I always claimed Gary, Indiana. And she knew that even when I was in the room and she was like, you know, maybe want to rethink this. You know, you might just... You started off this way, and it's okay that you have to change majors. I mean, now as an associate dean, I tell students, we really have four years to prepare you for 40. And if you're going to change your major, it's okay. In the end, we want you to be able to do whatever you want to do the rest of your life for the next 40 years of your life, you know? And so she was sharing that message with me to try to keep me in school. But I had convinced myself that would I could get a job, and it's going to be okay. I mean, how do you how do you tell an 18, 19, 20 year old kid um, who already thinks they're invincible? And I had that profile <laughs> that it's not going to be okay, right? Everything I've pretty much done is yeah, you take a step back sometimes, but you end up landing on your feet. And when I couldn't land on my feet, going back to our office wasn't a painful decision at all. It was the only decision to be made, and I think she could see that. Um, when she had decided, yeah, I think you're, you're going to be able to be counseled back in. Now, what she did, I don't know. Who she talked to, I don't know. Even now as an associate dean, I don't, I don't know the secret sauce. But I do think it comes from her, maybe her collateral, her cultural capital, um, her value at that institution and that college to say, I can make an executive decision and I want you to back me up on it. Um, I believe maybe she saw something in me that I, at that point in my life, I couldn't see in myself. But nonetheless, whenever she did tell me, you're going to be readmitted, but it comes with a caveat. When I call you to come speak to students, I need you to share your story about what happened. You got to be honest about it. And I was like, deal, no problem. You know, me sharing stories was never a problem. <laughs> and being honest about this one, it was definitely not a problem. And so over the next couple of years, I literally would, she would call me and I would go speak with prospective students or struggling students about the decisions that I made and the outcome, how I'm here now, you know, and maybe I could save you a little bit of time if you're, if you're thinking about withdrawing from the university. It may, it may be better served to have that meaningful conversation with someone um, who helps people in these situations. And Dean Hodges was clearly one of those people. So I came to know her, not just literally as a student, but almost like a nephew. Uh, we stuck together. When we have football games, we tailgate, <laughs> you know, still, <laughs> you know. And so we kind of hang out. And when, uh, whenever it snows, I'd shovel my driveway, and then I go shovel two other driveways, uh, hers and Jim Anderson's. So it's like these were the two mentors that I had in college, two of many mentors, but two that really, I think, serendipitously nudged me toward becoming the human being I am today. 
you talked about how you would share your story with um, st other students who are going through things that kind of like what you went through. And I want to ask you more about that, about your mentoring over the years. But before that, um, your, your stories are very compelling and very fascinating when I've had a chance to speak with you over the years. And some of them are, are stories about your work as a professor, but some that I remember go back even further to this really interesting set of experiences you had beginning as a very young man and with your, I'll call it your specialization, your, your <laughs> uh, <laughs> great gift that you have that I think maybe a lot of people may not know about. Can you talk about where you spent a lot of your time growing up and your special talent that maybe a lot of people don't have? And, and more than that, I, I'm most interested in that about, you've told me about some of the mentors that kind of showed you the way in that early life set of experiences you had. Yeah, I, I, I think you're alluded to my skill set as a billiards, pocket billiards player. Um, yeah, I, when my dad passed away, um, one of the first things I actually sought to do was find a job. It's kind of coincided with the age when teenagers get jobs. But I was going for long, long, long walks. I mean, it was just kind of, a, it was, the walks were therapeutic for me. I went to apply for a job and <laughs> billiards, actually billiards is another serendipitous moment. It's an accident uh, as well. When I applied for a job, it was like to this Popeye's chicken I believe it was Popeye's. It was Popeye's or KFC. Um, either way, I knew right away when I walked in, I'm not cut out for this work. I didn't like anything about it. The manager was uh, somewhat um, cantankerous. Uh, he just didn't seem like he enjoyed his life. And if he didn't enjoy his life, he was going to make anybody who worked for him not enjoy his life. And so I filled out the application. But even if they were going to call me, I wasn't going to take the job. I walked out got about halfway down the block, realized I probably should use the restroom before I make the long walk home because it's about four miles home at least. Um, so I went back in to see if I could just use the restroom. And the manager said, you can't use the restroom here if you're not going to buy anything. And I was just like, I just filled an application out. He's like, you ain't buying nothing. You ain't, you ain't using a restroom. I was like, wow. So I literally started walking back the direction toward the house, crossed the street, saw this place, and uh, it was a billiards place. And I said, I'll go in there. So I walked inside. I saw the restroom in the back. So I walked real fast past everybody and went to the restroom, came out. And I loved the place because it had air conditioning. It was a hot summer day. I figured I'll cool down a little bit before I take this one hour walk home. I'm watching two people shoot pool and uh, both older African-American males. And at one point, one of them just comes up to me puts a pool cue in my direction, says, take this. Uh, I need to go to the restroom. Go hit some balls over there with my friend. I had never shot pool before in my life. And I was only watching them because they clearly knew what they were doing. It was like everyone else was missing shots and maybe even taking a bad shot. And these two individuals were killing each other. <laughs> it was like best I had ever seen. So I go to play and I'm just trying to emulate what they were doing. And the person I'm playing now, he says, you've ever shot pool before? I said, no. He said, well, you know how to hold the cue well. And I said, well, I was just watching you guys. And so when the guy from the restroom came back out, I tried to hand him his cue. He said, no, 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 take a few more shots. And I said, okay. So I'm taking some more practice shots. I'm not making anything. But what I noticed they're noticing is my form, my stance, the way I'm holding the cue, literally trying to emulate everything they were doing. Um, it's like if you ever watch a golfer or a basketball player shoot a free throw, it's all about the form, you know, and the way a golfer takes a swing. It's all about keeping his body steady, right? His elbows tucked in. Well, Billiards has his own mechanics as well. The guy is, I was shooting with, his name is Glenn Rogers. Uh, we call him Piggy Banks. And the guy who handed me his cue, um, his name is Leonard Ruckers, and we called him Bugs, uh, Bugs Ruckers. Uh, Bugs said, well, if you come back every day uh, with $5 every day, I'll teach you how to shoot pool. I said, I don't have any money. <laughs> he said, well, go find some money. He said, but I guarantee you after 10 lessons, you'll be able to hold your own. And I was like, I don't have any money. I went home. I told my older brother, 
I said, man, this guy said I probably could be a pretty good pool player, but he wants me to give him 50 bucks to teach him how to shoot pool and give me 10 lessons. And my brother's like, that's a hustle, man. He's not going to teach you how to shoot pool. He's a guy probably doesn't even know how to shoot pool. I said, no, he knows how to shoot pool, man. I said, I was watching him. So the guy didn't miss any shots and he made it look effortless. Okay. And he was like, no, 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 he's hustling you. I said, I don't think he is. I said, I really do wish I had 50 bucks because I would just give it to him so I could learn how to shoot pool. So my brother gave me a hundred dollar bill. I don't even know where he got it from. He said, if you have that much faith, go get yourself 20 lessons. I went back, I gave it to Bugs, and I said, I'm good for 20 lessons, right? He said, let's go. And from there, we literally started shooting pool every day for those 20 days. And I got really good. (laughs) I got so good that when I withdrew from the university, I literally said, well, I can't work except for this $3.85 an hour. I went to Bugs. And I told Bugs, I said, I guess I can go on a row with you and shoot some pool. And Bugs probably made a few million dollars in his life shooting pool. None of it legal. Um, he's gone now, so I guess he can't be sued by the IRS or anything like that. I didn't know at the time he was like the Michael Jordan of billiards in the city of Chicago. I mean, that's just the easiest way to describe him. He's the best bank pool, one pocket player to come out of the city of Chicago. Bank pool means every shot's got to be banked off a rail before it's a legal shot. And you got to call that shot. So if it's cross side, it's got to go off the rail into a side pocket, three in the side, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I went toe bugs. I said, I withdrew from college. I'm not going to go back. I try to find a job. I guess I just go shoe pool with you and make a living that way. Bug said he would never speak to me again if I didn't go back to college. He says, we didn't spend all this time watching you, protecting you, seeing your aspirations. He didn't use that word, but that's what he meant. Get to this point. None of us in here had any opportunities that you ever had. And you're going to give it all away for this? He said, look, if I could trade places with you, I would gladly trade places with you. You get get yourself back in the school, make something of yourself. He said, look at me. This is the best that I can do. Now, I looked at him as a mentor and a role model. And I was a little offended that he didn't want me to hang out with him. I had no idea how much he was really protecting me in that moment to give me a foundation. Um, When Bugs died, it hurt. I mean, Piggy Banks, Pig is still around. I still chit chat with him. I still go to pool tournaments with him. He's still uh, an uncle to me. But both Bugs and Pig were really uncles, some ways a father figure to me in ways that I didn't have before. I wasn't looking for it. I want to be very clear about it. But it was clear that they could see, there were so few African-Americans who had those opportunities, especially in the early 1990s. Like I'm literally the first generation of black Americans, Americans in general, born when slavery and segregation didn't exist by law. And so they come up from that generation, the last generation to be legally segregated by law, you know? And what they're seeing is this generational gap of this young person who thinks I should be just like them. But in actuality, if they had an opportunity, they would choose to be a little bit more like me and have the opportunities like me. And so between bugs uh, saying, don't hang out with me if you don't get back into school, uh, and me not being able to find a job, it was a no-brainer that I was going to go back to Joanne Hodges and ask her, how do I get back into school? And uh, when I did, you know, it was great. I mean, it was almost like all the pieces of the world started to fit together. And now I actually realized why I was going to be in college. I mean, I, I think this is the profession I would not only enjoy, but enjoy for the rest of my life, becoming a historian of American education which I still happen to be a pretty good pool player as well. <laughs> uh, now I'm a domesticated pool player now. <laughs> some of the stories you've shared with me have been some of my, I go home and tell my kids, I try to replicate the stories and I, I fail greatly, but they're some of the best stories and most entertaining uh, stories I've ever heard. <laughs> and well, you're, too, you're too kind, man. You're too kind. <laughs> But but, the, but a lot of that is is you. It's, it's a lot of it is ex- the experience, but a lot of it is you. The way that you're able to um, not just to tell a story, but to value the narrative and to see the bigger picture around not only your own life, but as a historian, you know, we often as colleagues often find ourselves in policy discussions or in uh, leadership discussions. And I always appreciate how you're able to kind of step back and look at the big picture historically or contextually. And this relates to 
with a lot of our coaches, one of the themes that I've heard a lot has been, you know, as a, as a coach, whether I'm a coaching a basketball team or a soccer team or whatever it is, I come into a place at a school or a university that's something has happened before me. You know, there's, there's been, there's a, there's a story here before I got there. And some of the best coaches I've spoken with have been able to understand that when they come in to, they're becoming part of a story that's been going and they're, and they're able to kind of understand that to a certain extent and to um, not act like it didn't happen. As, as a historian, do you have thoughts on that that you could share with people who are coming into new settings, say as a coach or as a teacher, and how, how can we understand a local history of a place we're coming to? And what, what should we do to value that better and to um, operate better within that history? No, that's an excellent question. Unless you're the founding whatever, right? Founding dean, founding basketball or football coach, you know, uh, founding department. <clears throat> Most of us are the chapter in a long book, and we're not the first chapter. Uh, we're somewhere, you know, towards the middle, maybe even the latter part, <laughs> which means that you come, you enter a space with a history. Uh, and so, and these chapters are very much sequential. Um, they're chronological. Um, they're not as if they're somehow episodic that one thing's happening here and one thing's happening there. You're just part of a continuing um, narrative. And I think it's very important to understand that the context of how that matters uh, in so many important ways. And so if you think about just some of the stories I was sharing, um, Partially what I was sharing was context. Um, being the first in a family to go to college, being the first in a pool hall <laughs> to go to college, <laughs> you know, uh, being, being advised by a woman who was the first in her family to go to college, you know? And so there, there's a continuing thread there that as a historian, that person would pick that up and see the panoramic view, you know, the hundred years of, what it means to be the first to go to college um, and where you fit within that narrative, but also understand the discretionary moment, um, that one particular moment that defines whether a person will stay or not stay on that path. And so Joanne Hodges deciding to use her discretion to help someone, a youth, you know, and put them on this path rather than that path. Uh, Bugs Rucker's deciding to show me some tough love using his discretionary moment to make sure that a person stays on that path. And so I think that's what, it, whether it's a coach, whether it's a, a fellow participant of any community, the first thing they want to do is start to educate themselves as to, well, how am I a part of this larger narrative? Clearly, I saw myself as just shooting pool with a couple of buddies, maybe a couple of uncles, father figures. They saw something a little bit more and they, they demanded that I see that being a little bit more. And that kind of opened my world to say, take a step back here, Span, and realize you're not in college just for you. You're in college for every person in here. So even now when I walk into that billiards room, you know, they're like, we knew this guy when he was 16 years old and he's a college professor now. He still hangs out with us. Can you believe that? You know? And it was like, I'm a chapter, multiple chapters in that story, in that narrative, but it's the context. But when I bring one of the people that I shoot pool with or one of my students at the university who's hanging out with me, they're looking at, or even my son, they're looking like, wow, dad actually has an interesting history here. Or, or Professor Spann has actual history here. And what they're saying is, is that no matter your station in life, you should be able to relate to people at their level, not in a negative way in a humanistic way. It's like, I don't walk in with airs that I'm Chris Band PhD. No, I, 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 no, I'm anything but that, you know? They used to actually call me the professor in the billiards room, not because they knew I was gonna be a college professor, but because I was always reading a book. I got, billiards was somewhat, um, it was too slow for me sometimes. And to show my opponent, it was a psychological trick that I had no real interest in what they were doing. I would just read a book. You know, it's like this book is far more interesting than anything you're doing on a billiards table. It's only interesting when I get up there. Okay. And it would just immediately start annoying the person. 
<laughs> throw them off the game a little bit, you know, but there would be chapters of this context. So if you're a new person, say a new coach coming into a community, the first thing you should understand is you are a chapter in a, a continuing narrative in you're the newest chapter. You're the newest book. It doesn't book chapter. It doesn't mean that you won't count, but it also means you should never discount what happened before. You don't let it carry your way forward, but you learn enough to use enough to help guide where you're going to go in the days ahead. Because there are people in the community, like I remember when we had a new basketball coach, I was struck by, and I'll lead this coach uh, here at Illinois, I was struck by his hubris. Um, because I said, you know, there's a guy in town who for close to 20 years uh, conditioned uh, himself to where student athletes would show up and do his uh, conditioning routine so they can become better conditioned, particularly the basketball players. And he said, well, what do you mean? So he's in his 50s now, but he, he runs six miles uh, through the graveyard over there. <laughs> he goes lift weights for an hour after that. And then he runs these 60, 40 sprints on the football field. You know, he runs full speed at 60 yards and then half speed at 40 yards. And he does that until he gets to 30. So he does that 30 times. He's in his 50s. And some of the uh, basketball players and football players decided, hey, this guy's conditioning routine is so good that he's going to get me in the, into the NFL or the NBA. And he was. So maybe you want to reach out to him and talk to him and see maybe if he wants to come over and talk to some of your new recruits. And they can get a sense and things of the such, right? Say, so, because he's known basketball players for the last 30 years since he's been in town. Football players last 30 years. Coach looked at me like I was crazy. Why would I do that? And I was like, on so many different levels, not just the conditioning thing. Here's an African-American male who could serve as a role model for African-American males coming to town. Here's somebody that your kids can confide in when they don't want to have to try to confide in somebody in athletics. Here's somebody who's completely neutral to a situation, but supportive to your program. And also here's somebody who just is a phenomenal human being that you probably want youth to be around. And that's why I'm suggesting this person. Not only did he basically say, I don't need that person's advice. He was telling me at the same time, I don't need your advice as the faculty athletic representative for Illinois. And I was in there like, good luck coach. <laughs> you know, because there's not much you can do in that moment. It was just kind of like for him, context did not matter. And I was like, how did you get this far without respecting the fact that context always matters, you know? And so somewhere in there, if I had a message to anybody who is new to town or new to a situation, is don't shy away from the past. I'm telling you this both as a, as a person as well as a historian. But don't let the past guide you to the point that you are debilitated by. You use a past to understand the present, to make informed decisions about the future. And that's the way I approach it, not just as a profession, but as a person in the community. Back to your the, the mentorship issue, I know now as a as a you're not just a professor, but also a, a de, working as a dean as an associate dean there and have widespread administrative responsibilities throughout the campus and and both in that capacity, but also even before you ever became an administrator, you you've been a mentor. You've kind of done what a lot of people did for you. You've helped be that kind of wise voice um, to people coming up on campus there or in other places. And one, one asked, I wanted to ask you about that, about your, if you've carried on some of the things that you, you kind of experienced as from some of your mentors. But I want to ask you specifically about this idea of uh, disclosure as a mentor, um, especially one thing that we've heard a lot in coaching is the seasoned coach opining about the way it is, you know, the, you know, the way I do it, the way it is done. And, and that is a kind of a common thing that on one hand, you have a lot of coaches are very willing to say what they do and this is the way that you do it. And on the other hand, there are some who are, who are, you know, humble or they don't want to act like they know it all. So somehow is there a sweet spot as a mentor of disclosure about your own story? How much of your story do you share with, those you mentor in formal and informal ways 
and how do you determine how much to disclose or what to disclose in that relationship? That's a great question. I I try not to tell people what to do. Um, Just be very clear. Um, What I have learned is, I mean, that's always the nuclear option. That's like the last thing, like finally you just say, please don't touch the stove. Okay. It's like I tried to six different ways to show you why you should touch the stove or to give you stories of why you should touch the stove. But I see you reaching for the stove and you're going to touch it. So please don't touch the stove. Um, it's always the nuclear option. For me, I think I learned mostly from the people that I emulate now. Uh, there was a, a woman in the Office of Minority Student Affairs, uh, Priscilla Fortier one of a handful of white women working around underrepresented people in higher education all her life. And she never shied away from her profile. She never shied away from who she was. Um, She knew uh, her positionality as a white heterosexual woman, middle-class status, um, where it had strength, but also where it had liabilities. And she vicariously showed us how to institutionalize diversity, how to be an ally in a resource, how to listen rather than speak in certain moments, but then also when you should speak and what you should be speaking for. And so she would always afford opportunities and she was always there to be a resource for anybody, um, regardless of background. And you look at that and you're saying, you know, I don't believe I've ever met a person that committed to equity and inclusion before. How do I learn a little bit more about this person, right? Dedicated number two. Like if Scottie Pippen is the greatest number two in the history of the NBA, (laughs) you know, then Priscilla Fortier is the greatest number two in the history of the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign. And I I had the privilege of working with her for close to five to six years and seeing how she handles everything from being the white person in the room who could um, uh, hear all the things that whites would say about people of color, but they would never say it in front of a person of color. And then she would use not that information against the people per se, but she would weaponize it in a way to empower people to have greater opportunity resources. So I'm gonna take some resources over here and put them over here. So almost a Robin Hood mentality in, in that sense. Well, she never once told me how to do any of that, but I do it now all the time by watching her. She would share stories just like I just shared a story of her. And then I would see a little bit of myself in that story. And I would see a little bit of where maybe I was going wrong, but where I could possibly go right. Sometimes I would just be point blank and say, I don't understand. And then she would be point blank and say, why don't you consider this, this, and this? You know, we tried this strategy back in the late 80s and it didn't work for us, but the times have changed. Maybe you want to try this, but go get a couple allies when you're going to do it. Now, when I look at someone like Joanne Hodges or Bugs Ruckers or Jim Anderson, I put Priscilla Fortier in that same category as well, right? Here's a person who's teaching me how to make diversity core to the business of what we do in higher education. And she literally wrote the guidebook for that on our campus. Now, I'm sure our campus has lost it or placed it on a shelf, (laughs) but nonetheless, it was there for the making. I would look at someone else, uh, for example. Uh, Jim Anderson is a prime example here. He's probably the best storyteller that I've ever had the privilege of being around. Jim Anderson is now the dean of the College of Education at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He was department head of educational policy studies for uh, almost 25 years. Uh, He was my dissertation director and mentor for my doctorate degree. Uh, He's been a close colleague and friend. I've had lots of opportunities even to go other places, uh, do other jobs. Anderson, you think this is a good idea? He would never tell you yes or no. He he knows if you're interested in it, then you must be interested in it, right? If you're asking the question. So he would never tell you, no, don't do that, Span. That's not a good idea. What he would do is he would say, well, have you talked to anybody who works there? Have you uh, done any research? Um, what problems do you think they have? How's their budget? 
you know, you know, you, you know, you're going to need to go someplace that's going to have to have some resources for the ambitions and ideas that you have. So he would guide the conversation vicariously through sets of questions rather than literally telling you exactly what to do. And to me, those are sweet spots. Nine out of 10 times when I was in my 20s, it confused the hell out of me every time. Like, dude, I ain't asked for a riddle here. I'm asking for an answer. <laughs> and you're answering, my, you're answering me with a question. You're answering my question with a question, which is confusing the hell out of me. And I'm about to touch the stove, and he would be like, Span, don't do that. <laughs> this is what I need you to do. <laughs> because it's clear that your skull is too thick to understand what I was trying to share. But his next strategy is just to put himself back in my shoes to the best of his ability and to walk through those shoes. He knows what it was like to be 20 years old and deal with racism. He knows what it was like uh, to be uh, 25 and people telling you that you're not qualified for a job. He knows what it's like to be 40 and being the only person in the room uh, as a senior administrator or leader on campus that looks like him. And these are all the kinds of sets of questions that I have now that I wouldn't have had or I've had over the years that I've had the luxury of having this kind of stable person around me to give me kind of guidance and wisdom. But if you asked him, what's your blueprint? Uh, how do you actually go about mentoring people? I think what he would say is probably what I would say. It's, there is no one size that fits all. You have to tailor it to the person and you're tailored to the person because that person has come to know you and respect you in a way that they trust you. And they know that the advice that you're going to give them is going to be beneficial, even if it's a tough love set of circumstances. I would say the last person that's probably had the greatest mentoring influence on me is my wife. Um, she knows me better than any human being on the planet. Uh, and she knows uh, her husband, uh, how competitive I could be. Um, when I was in a billiards room, it wasn't enough for me to win. You needed to know you lost. <laughs> and I needed to, to know you know you lost. <laughs> and so, because I figured we're going to play each other again. I just know the next time we play, psychologically, I need you to remember what happened the last time, you know. <laughs> so, so somewhere in there, she knows this is her husband and how sometimes her husband can still be that competitive. And she is very direct but she's a mentor as well in her directness. This is the way you want to do it. This is what you want to do because she has such kindness and compassion. She has such a sense for others and a belief um, that there is something transformative in being mindful to humanity. And to me, I never grew up around any of that, you know? And so it's something that I have come to learn and appreciate in literally the quarter century that I've been with her and how she came and grew up in a household to have those values, to have that sense of self. So what I would say is, hopefully what you're hearing is there is no one way to go about it, but there are so many different people who've had such an impression on me that as I encounter people who I find a little bit of myself in all the time, or who I know come to me for uh, assistance, either as a, an administrator or as a professor or as a colleague or a friend, you know, I, I stop, I listen, I give them my fullest attention, and I try to make whatever I'm going to share with them as relatable as possible uh, to their experience. I don't try to fix their problem. Sometimes they want that done, but most times people just really need a set of ears so they can get out what they need to get out. And then they might need some wisdom and guidance from there. If people truly want um, an opinion, I usually ask, uh, are you looking for advice or an opinion here? Um, and if so, um, this is kind of what's happened to me. So, but I don't want you to think it's directly relatable. But I do think that coaches have to be willing to be adaptive. Uh, we may have, uh, we all are set in our ways. But if, we, if we're not flexible and adaptive, uh, especially knowing that our upbringing is so distinctively different now than the generation of kids in college or even in high school, um, it's gonna be nearly impossible to find a relatable story. And so that's the challenge. If anything, we probably need more mentoring from them now more than ever. They're, they're far more technologically savvy than 
50 years and up. <laughs> We're learning how to use this stuff. But this is how they develop friendships uh, through social media in ways that we're now starting to figure out how do you establish human connectivity in a remote virtual environment. And so somewhere in there, we, the grid may be flipped and how we even think about mentoring. But I always look at uh, the people in my lives and how they shaped my life. And then when asked to help others, I kind of use them as my source of inspiration. We're down to our last couple minutes here, but I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about, um, you, you've written so much. If you, one looks at your, your resume there and you can see you've just written great historical pieces, but other things and well, and what, some of that has been around, I saw one article or a couple about parent, about the role of parents. And it relates just to what you just said, which is that increasingly we're finding the role of parent is changing. Um, in the context you and I work together in sport, we see it a lot. And, and you, a lot of your stories about you finding your way as a, you know, you found your way with, with support of others, but you found your way through different phases of life. We're seeing parenting happen in very different ways. It seems now um, than we have in other years in, in sport, even where maybe a, there used to be a phase where parent kind of dropped a kid off at a court and said, I'll pick you up in a few hours. And now we're even seeing at the college level where you and I work together, parents still very present for the good or for the bad. Are there kernels of wisdom as you've written and as you've studied and as you've lived on, on parent involvement and how that can be done well and advocating for students, but allowing them also to, to make their way? I think the the short and the sweet of that is um, all 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 young people need to grow into adults, responsible adults through trial and error. And the best trial and error uh, is usually without parental supervision, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, as much as parents want to be involved in every aspect of their child's life. Um, the greatest growth happens when a child is on their own and they make mistakes and they figure out the strategies and solutions to remedy those mistakes or have to come to someone and admit uh, the mistakes and the challenges that they had. Uh, it's funny that as you say that to this day, my mom, even though she's passed now, she still doesn't know I withdrew from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. <laughs> and so I, I just never thought it was necessary to bring it up after I got back into college. <laughs> and so, but I could imagine my mom trying to minimize or mitigate uh, that situation. And I don't know what I would have learned from it. I do think that parents have to let go and let their kids learn and explore for themselves. Know that if they lay the foundation for them to have good values, uh, a healthy sense of self, uh, to take responsibility, um, when required, if they laid that, that foundation down, um, it would bear fruit as they become young, responsible adults. But like any person, it's an evolution. It's, it's not an epiphany. And so I have seen parents in athletics that won't let their student athlete, and I wouldn't even say their child at this point, their student athlete, um, be themselves do for themselves, be independent. I've met and, and have spoken on the phone to parents as an associate dean who literally wants to plan the academic uh, calendar and schedule and courses of undergraduate and graduate students. I don't think these are healthy relationships. I, think, I don't think it should be as loose and autonomous as my upbringing where my mom barely knew where I was. <laughs> You know, and my dad was gone. Um, but notwithstanding, I do think there's a there's a healthy balance between those two goalposts. And I think that's the way we have to approach this. Now, as educators, we want to remind our youth of their privacy rights. Uh, we want to remind our youth of their health uh, privacy rights. Um, many student athletes, unfortunately, have to sign away their FERPA rights. Um, but it would be wonderful if they didn't have to. That way they could have that sense of independence uh, coming of age. We know um, my, most of my publications have come from my ability to overcome 
a problem that I've been thinking about for a while. And so it's, it's, it's the logic that I've put down on a page to express what has happened in the past or to assess change over time. Um, but nothing magically flows out of a pen. It comes through trial and error, struggle. It comes through crumbling up pieces of paper and starting over. It comes through essentially the experimentation of research that yields a result that you can finally say, I'm going to put this down on paper to where it may be publishable. And anybody who's gone through that process would tell you um, there's no straight path. And so as parents think about their children's upbringing, as much as they want to protect them from the harms of the world, I actually have learned far more through my failures than I ever have through my successes. As a billiards player, I rarely remember the wins, but I always remember the losses. Mm. And I can tell you how I lost, when I lost, how I never lose again if I got a, another opportunity. But the wins were, you know, they were important. But the losses is where I had the greatest motivation to, to learn a little bit more, to take a little bit more responsibility, be a little bit better. And if I had my mom berating the person who was beating me, uh, <laughs> I would probably remember that more than the loss. And that's probably something I would run away from the rest of my life. <laughs> so my message to parents is give, give your child enough latitude and, and room for growth. Give by doing that, you're showing them tremendous amount of respect. And through that respect and the foundation that you laid, um, you'll have such a healthy relationship when they become young, responsible adults after college. You missed out on uh, Kenny Battle and Kendall Gill, um, Stephen Bardo, but <laughs> it turned out okay. It did turn out okay. We had a rough patch, but yeah, it turned out okay. Okay. <laughs>